going to be looking at verses 4 through 9. The great 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, uh, once called the book of Numbers, Moses' Pilgrim's Progress, because it so details the full account of these pilgrims moving from Egypt to the promised land. And they have a whole array of difficulties set before them. The people of God have fled from the city of destruction and have gone through the slew of despond, all to face the hill of difficulty. And now they are here at Doubter's Castle, questioning, wondering, is God really good? And so it's no wonder that the New Testament often treats this time period of religious history as the paradigm for which we are to understand the Christian life, that the Christian life is that of a pilgrim. We are sojourners waiting for our eternal home. So we'll be looking at this passage, seeing from it a very clear warning to not put Christ to the test as they did and were destroyed by serpents, but rather to look to the Lord's salvation and so live. So if you are the note-taking type, we're going to be just walking through this passage under three simple headings. First, we're going to see the complaint, then the mediation, and then the salvation. So read with me from Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And church, what do we know about God's word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can come to your word again this morning, this Lord's Day, where we are called to worship as your people. We thank you that we have the promise that you will speak to us in it, that you will come and dwell among us and convict our hearts. Lord, we pray that if we are hard-hearted, you would soften our hearts, that your spirit would come upon us and we'd be convicted by the truth, that we would look to Christ for the salvation that only he provides that we'd find in him our life and our health. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So some of your parents are quite familiar with the whimpering from the backseat of the car. Are we there yet? How long is it going to take for us to get there? Are we there yet? Why is it taking so long? And as the trip goes along, you hear the whimpering grow into a full-out complaint. Um, I know as a child, when I'd go on long road trips, I was usually the instigator that would yell at my parents, why is it taking us so long to get there? Now, if you could imagine being in a car for a generation, and you have your children in the back, and then in the seat behind them, you have your grandchildren. Well, that's a little bit of the experience that the Israelites uh, have journeying from Egypt to the promised land. 
You know, they're sent under judgment and they're to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And at times they are wondering, where is God in all of this? We have to depend on something else for food. We have to depend on something else for water. And we do not like this. So it's been a, a, a road of immense difficulty and trial. But the end was actually now in sight as they neared Edom to head up to the promised land. Yet the previous chapter reveals that they can't actually go through Edom, so they have to go straight down by way of the Red Sea. Now, if you look at a map that traces the wilderness wandering of the people of God uh, in the Exodus, you will notice that it really does look like one gigantic circle that they had near the promised land. Now they're heading straight back down to Egypt. So it says that the people had become impatient on the way. Of course, you can hear the tempter's words behind their doubts. Why would God deliver us out of Egypt just to send us straight back? If the Lord has really promised such a great salvation, why does he make us live like homeless sojourners, not living in one place for any kind of significant period of time, always on the move? Why would God make us live this way? Why, God, why? And you'll notice that their impatience turns into something more than a little discouragement and doubt. Look at verse 5. It says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So rather than turning to God for consolation and encouragement, says that the Israelites spoke against God and against Moses. It's not a mere complaint with hope for God's mercy, but it's an outright rejection of his authority. It's a rejection of even Moses' authority. They despise the Lord's character and his gifts, calling the manna that was provided every single day for them worthless food. And isn't that often how impatience works? A little complaint, a little grumble, a little side comment about how your lot in life is not the way it should be. And it actually turns out to be something far more heinous than we often think. What is so often thought of as a moment of frustration about life not going the way that you want it to is really the revelation of a heart that does not trust in God's good fatherly care. You see, what the Israelites are showing us in this passage is nothing less than the human heart that is so prone to forget the goodness of God in times of affliction and suffering. They've forgotten that they have a heavenly Father who has led them out by great miracles from Egypt that no other people in the history of mankind had ever been brought out of slavery and delivered, made free. They had forgotten that. They had forgotten that the bread that they so despise is a constant reminder of God's faithfulness to them day in and day out. And how often do we forget that when there's some prolonged time of suffering in our lives, that rather than turning to God for mercy, we turn our hearts to bitterness? Well, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, this minor detour in their journey, a painful but small inconvenience, just a minor detour, 
was by the Lord's sovereign guiding and direction. The Lord knew what destination he was bringing them to. He was indeed preparing them to receive their blessed inheritance. Though the path seemed crooked to them, though it didn't make any sense to the Lord, it was straight. It was going exactly according to plan. And our lives may be full of circling back, one step forward, two steps back, prolonged periods of suffering, but this is all under the sovereign hand and loving guidance guidance of our Father who is in heaven. Therefore, we must meet these occasions as a trusting child and not a rebellious child who doubts the very own care of their father. But the Israelites gave themselves over to grumbling rather than gratitude. And so look at how God responds in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. The punishment fits the crime. Israel complained about being led out of the supposed comforts of Egypt, and so God fittingly gives them a taste of Egypt. Now, if you know anything about Egyptian society, they almost deified serpents. That the Pharaoh wore a serpent around his head. That was his crown. And you remember in the Exodus that he had some kind of witchcraft that these people were performing and making sticks turn into serpents. And so there was this kind of close connection with serpents in Egypt. And so God sends them down on the people. He says, you want Egypt? Here it goes. You don't want my care? You don't want my loving guidance? Well, here it is. Here's what you had before. And so the serpents are, is a punishment that fits the crime. And there's something obviously more theologically interesting, of course, with serpents, that the serpent is the great enemy of the people of God who deceived Eve and whose bite has the power of death. And so the Lord uses the serpent to discipline their rebellion, so to the point that many of the Israelites died. And so that's the complaint. That's the complaint that leads to their discipline. But now we'll turn to the need for mediation in verse 7. I remember a few years ago, I took Greek in Bible college. And if you know anything about languages, you can often kind of memorize the vocab words that you need right before the exam kind of cram them in, and then you take the exam, you can get 100% on it, and then two days later, it's gone. And so my professor was smart enough to know that that's how college kids study. And so what he would often do is give us comprehensive exams throughout the semester. And then he had one particular exam coming back from winter break, uh, started semester two in Greek. And this is what he called the wake-up call exam. So we had to, in order to to actually progress in the class, you had to get a 90% on this exam, and it was basically the same exam as the final. And so many people would have that wake-up call where they would take it and fail miserably because they didn't study over winter break and they had forgotten everything. And so it functioned as a wake-up call to them. Well, the snakes tormenting the people in the wilderness is their wake-up call. Their discomfort, their pain, even death, causes them to be more alert to their circumstances and sin. They can now see it clearly. 
before they could just grumble all that they wanted and complain against God. But once he sent serpents down, they had to really pay attention to what was going on. And of course, you're probably familiar with the C.S. Lewis quote. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Well, look at the megaphone that is used of these serpents and what it produces in verse 7. Look at the text. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Now notice the content of the people's confession to Moses. They confess their sin, that they have disobeyed God and transgressed his laws. But then they get more specific. They say, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. There's actually much to be learned from this example of repentance. They state plainly, even publicly, that they are indeed in the wrong. And then they confess their specific sins of calling into question the character of God. Here we do not have any person backing off, saying, well, maybe we shouldn't have used those words to describe how we're feeling. Or somebody getting vague, you know, well, we made a mistake. No, they are specific. They name their sin exactly as Scripture records it in verse 5, and they reply to God with it. And so then they go to their mediator and plead with him. The Westminster Confession describes this kind of repentance perfectly. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. That's what we have here, a particular repentance for particular sins. And I do have to ask, is this the kind of confession that marks your life of continual repentance? I know how often during the confession of sin, during worship, it's easy to just be vague and and cry out to God saying, yes, I'm a wicked man, yes, I'm unclean, yes, I'm unholy. But what the Lord requires of us is to get specific with our sins, to name them one by one to him, to call out for repentance and forgiveness, sins of discontentment, of impatience, specific acts of laziness and worldliness. And so it is this kind of repentance that the Lord hears with mercy. And that's what we have here in this text. So notice also how the people of God go to Moses with their plea for mercy. They don't go directly to God. They go to their mediator for help in their time of need. And this highlights the reality that God is holy that sinful people like you and I cannot just approach him on our own merits. We can't go directly to him, for he is far too holy. We have to go by way of a mediator. And so that's why the people go to Moses, who was their mediator, and they ask him to pray for them. And so it is that Moses prays for the people, and he takes up their cause and intercedes on their behalf. And we know That this mediation for the people of God is just a foreshadowing of the one and true mediation of our great high priest 
It is Christ who takes up our causes and our complaints. He pleads his blood before his Father. It is Christ who has gone into the heavenly places and he ever lives to make intercession for us. It is Christ who is perfectly equipped to represent the people before God. He bears our very nature and he represents God to us bearing the nature of God as the eternal son of the Father. Our great mediator sympathizes with us in our time of need. And he sends his spirit as the ultimate gift from the Father to help us in our times of weakness. So with Christ as our mediator, we are bold to access the throne room of grace. And we can find forgiveness for any sin. So get specific with your repentance. Don't be vague, but be exact. Our Lord Jesus can take any sin and make it clean by his blood. And so it is that we sing in the song, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So That's the mediation that takes place in this text that points us to Christ. But there's also the salvation in verses 8 through 9. Look at the text. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the Lord instructs Moses to make a likeness of a serpent, the serpents that had struck them, that had killed many of them, He's supposed to go and make one of them bronze and lift it up on a pole. So what's going on here? The people asked Moses that the Lord would take away the serpents from them, to remove them from the people. But here God is saying, make a serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up before the people so that if any of them look at that serpent, they would live. And so it's not an exact response to what they were requesting. So what's going on here? Well, the reason for this is that God is using this as an object lesson of how God himself holds the power to defeat the serpents. That God himself is able to save them. And so they must look to their provision. And we know, of course, that object lessons often communicate and drive a point far better than just speaking. I used to work at a golf course for uh, a few years in high school, and so I would often have to give lessons to young children learning the, the game. And so we would try to explain to them the grip and how they were to stand, and they could never figure it out if you just used audible words to describe it to them. They, never, they could never get it. And so what we had to figure out is be creative. We had to use these different kind of object lessons of tennis rackets and obviously golf clubs and show it to them. So once they saw it, they could resemble it and they could figure it out in their own brains how to do it when they're on the golf course. And so object lessons like this one we have here can drive home a powerful point that God himself has defeated the power of the serpent and you have to look to his provision of salvation to live. This object lesson also functions as a type. It's a type of the story of the gospel. Look and live. 
See, when Adam and Eve gave in to the serpent's temptation, a venomous poison of sin was unleashed upon the human race. It held humanity captive to death and the devil with no hope in this world. But God, who was rich in mercy, sent his son to crush the head of the serpent so that all who look at his son may live. And so it's no wonder why Jesus would compare his own death, burial, and resurrection to this story, this random plucked out story in in Numbers. He draws from it because it is the perfect object lesson of salvation through his redemption. And so John 3, 14 through 15 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may may have eternal life. So Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and laid his life down on a cursed tree so that by looking at him in faith, we may have that assurance that we have eternal life. And I wonder if you are struck by the simplicity of the salvation that is presented here in this text, both in Numbers and in John. It doesn't take much to look. It's just looking You don't have to have an impressive resume of your good works to be able to look. You don't have to be a certain age to look. You don't have to have some kind of forced emotional response to be able to look. You just have to look at that bronze serpent that is lifted up at the pole. It's simple. Yet, as we know that so many people, when presented with the gospel, see Christ in all of his glory, yet they're unable to truly see. Because this requires that the people turn from themselves and turn to God. It's amazing how simple this looking is, but yet how so many people are unable to look to the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's just a sad thing to see a person who is so consumed in themselves by their own problems, their shortcomings, their sins, that they would never just raise up their eyes and see what God has done for them in Christ. Such a sad state of our culture that we are so turned in on ourselves. We're so consumed by our own lives, by our own feelings, by our own need for therapy for this and that, that we refuse to look up at Christ, who is there to make us all well, ultimately. And so we would do well to heed Robert Murray McChain, who said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. The message is clear, isn't it? Look and live. As someone who is studying in seminary, wanting to go into the ministry, to preach, I know this is my task and commission. It's simple to call upon every person to look to Christ and to live. It was January of 1850, and a young man was seeking shelter from a blizzard that had swept through England. And he went into the primitive Methodist chapel on a Sunday to seek shelter. And an unknown and substitute lay preacher that nobody had any clue who this guy was got up to preach his text. Isaiah 45, 22, what we had in the call to worship 
Look unto me and be ye saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And this preacher went on for about 15 minutes. He kept repeating the text, bumbled it, mumbled. People couldn't understand what was going on. I'm sure people were sleeping in the back. And towards the end of his sermon, he looked to a young Charles Spurgeon and said to him, Young man, you look miserable, and you will be miserable in life and in death unless you obey my text. Young man, look to Christ and live. Now perhaps if that happened to you, you would slouch down in your chair with all this embarrassment and probably die right on the spot. But here's what Spurgeon said when that man called out to him to look and live. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. The lay preacher was no extraordinary preacher by any means. He probably would have got an F in any kind of homiletics course in seminary, but here he knows the whole point of the message. Look to Christ and live. So church, where is your gaze? Where are you looking for the power that saves, for the power that sustains, for the power that will bring you all the way home? Because if you're looking anywhere other than Christ, you will find no life or salvation. You will be crippled by the venom of the serpent that has struck you. What's going to sustain you in affliction? What's going to sustain you in prolonged periods of suffering? And it will always be our tendency and temptation to look anywhere and everywhere but to the Lord. But we have to keep this in front of our own eyes. And so that's why Augustine said, it is our whole business in life to restore the health to the eye whereby God may be seen. And so church, let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful that you have provided such an abundant salvation. It's so clear throughout the first chapter of Ephesians that you have blessed us before the foundations of the earth, that you have given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. May we derive our strength and our power from the same Christ that saved us. May we look to him in faith and live. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Number 66, please stand with me as we respond.